Blog Talk Radio. Welcome. You're listening to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, 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 what's cracking, peeps? And welcome to the Wednesday edition of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Hopefully you uh, enjoyed the Monday edition. It was something I'm really passionate about. And we had Ethan DeMitchell on and Ethan spoke about food sensitivities. Um, I guess the, the title of the show was Can Unhealthy Foods, Can Healthy Foods Be Unhealthy is what was the title of the show. And again, I'm very passionate about that. I've shared with that plenty of times on the air where um, I was diagnosed with a gluten sensitivity, and I still have that sensitivity. I don't uh, partake in gluten, so to speak, and uh, it's really normalized my weight. There was a time growing up as a skinny kid, I weighed, I graduated high school, weighed 177 pounds at 6'5". No, not 177. That's when I graduated college, and I was 6'7", but 6'5", I think I weighed about 160 pounds when I graduated high school, and um, as I became a young adult, I just started to pick up a lot of weight. And it wasn't until I realized that I had a gluten sensitivity. And when I put gluten, took gluten out of my diet, my, rate, my weight just miraculously started stabilizing itself. And I've never had a problem on my weight since then. And it may not be the miracle thing that everybody thinks that it is, but it definitely worked for me. If you have some underlying health issues, it's not always that one thing. But for me, it was that one thing that kind of made everything sort of click, if I can use that language. So again, it's very important to find out what foods you're sensitive to. And Ethan and I really talked about at some point, you're going to be able to eat those foods again. Um, I worked in the food sensitivity testing lab. And one thing that I always came across is that people were really afraid to find out what their sensitivities were because they thought that they could never eat the food again. And that's not always so. If you're doing the testing or have an idea of want to do the testing, then one thing I would really advise is that go ahead, get it done. And then at three months after taking the foods out of your diet, you probably want to introduce them back into the diet. But again, check that show out. Really informative show for those of you who may have food issues and may know that you have some type of sensitivity to food. And one of the things that I found out when I was in that field was that many people thought that they had sensitivities to food. So again, it's something that you might want to check out. Tonight, have another great show for you. We have Kirsten Shockey, and we'll be talking about fermented vegetables. And I'm going to confess, I don't know a lot about the fermentation process, but I wanted to know more about it. And that's why I really wanted to get someone on who can kind of speak the knowledge to fermenting and fermenting vegetables. And we had Hannah Crum on not long ago, and she talked about kombucha, which is a fermented uh, beverage. But tonight we're going to be talking more about fermenting vegetables for those people out there who like vegetables like me. So let me read Kirsten's bio. Kirsten and Christopher Shockey got their start in fermenting foods first on their in their home and then with their Farmstead Food Company, where they created over 40 varieties of cultured vegetables and krauts. When they realized their passion was for the process, they chose to focus on teaching the art of fermenting vegetables. They still experiment with new recipes, help others set up in-house or farmstead fermentories, 
teach classes at their farm and host small farm workshops. They live on a 40-acre hillside homestead in Applegate Valley of Southern Oregon, where they have cultivated a handmade life for the last 15 years. Their days are, are their days are a chaotic combination of parenting, day jobs, writing, and navigating whatever the climate and the rural lifestyle throws their way. Every day is different. Kristen, Christopher and Kirsten can be found watering, preserving harvests, making cheese, planting trees, chopping firewood, mucking stalls, hiking, dreaming up the next project, reading or dancing on the porch under the stars. At the end of the day, they go to bed exhausted and knowing life is good. And that was really long. Kirsten Shockey, welcome to Perfectly Health and Tone Radio. How are you tonight? I am exhausted from listening to that. <laughs> I'm exhausted just from all that you do during the days. I can't believe it. Wow. Wow. Not well, all great of to have you on. But <laughs> well, I I think you the the first person. Maybe I think I have one more guest on that I spoke with, um, and she lives on a farm as well. So I can kind of recall what her days were like, and just reading that synopsis of your bio. I can get a feel for, man, it just seems like it's always something going. But um, talk to us a little bit about your background. I guess your bio kind of tells a little bit about it, but give us your background, a little bit more on your background, Kristen. Um, yeah, I, like like you read, we um, have a farmstead out here. We've been living out here for about 20 years. Um, that's a big number. <laughs> it doesn't seem that long. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, we moved out here um, when the kids were young and really wanted to come up with, uh, we were passionate about food and healthy food and good food and wanted to come up with a way to um, make the farm, you know, part of our lifestyle, but also help feed others. Um, but neither one of us were farmers in our and our property is on a hillside, so um, we grow fruit trees really well, but not so much crops. And um, Christopher, my husband, was um, really interested in fermented cider, like hard cider. And so mm-hmm. we put in a commercial kitchen because we wanted to have sort of a, like I said, a farmstead business where we work together. And um, I'd been a cheesemaker for a lot of years. And I knew I didn't want to do that commercially, but um, I'd been fermenting uh, vegetables, and I knew that it was really simple. So we started just fermenting um, vegetables in our commercial kitchen while we were waiting for apples to grow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and it took off. You know, people were people were excited about it. It was right at the beginning of when, um, you know, about 2009, when people were starting to get this, idea that, wow, this stuff might be good for us. We might need this in our system. Um, so we spent a lot of time at the market educating folks and just explaining, you know, what this thing was. Sometimes it was pretty cute. You know, we'd have our mm-hmm. little vegetables out in the jars and tasting. And, you know, fermented beets from afar look like blackberry jam. And folks would come in and, you know, then back up when they realized that they were looking at beet sauerkraut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um you know, but usually once they tried it and realized it wasn't the yucky stuff in the can, they were kind of fascinated. And and we had a lot of people come to market and say, wow, you know, I'm feeling better when I eat this stuff. And, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of where it all began. We've been fermenting vegetables at home since 99. 
Um, but then, you know, really exploring more than just fermented sauerkraut, cabbage um, came, you know, much later. And you were inspired, as I was um, reading a book, I think you were inspired by um, your mother-in-law, I want to say, and she gave you a book at Christmas time uh, by Sally Fallon, and that's how you got into the fermented starting to ferment the vegetables. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I think I recall from the book. Yeah, it was my mom. You're right. She um, okay. she, she gave us the book, um, uh, Nourishing Traditions by F- Sally Fallon, and, um, mm-hmm. and a crock full of sauerkraut that was already in there doing its thing. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, we pick up the box that's wrapped under the tree. She's like, oh, yeah, and be careful with that. And the kids are, you know, looking around me like, what is in there because it doesn't smell right. <laughs> so, yeah, but then when I read the book and I, I realized, um, you know, that eating these traditional foods is so um, good for us, we started to incorporate sauerkraut into our diet as well. Yeah, I um, I guess as a kid growing up, and any time you smell something that doesn't smell uh, too kosher, you tend to stay away from it. And it wasn't until maybe like two years ago that um, I, I discovered these uh, hot dogs from U.S. Wellness. They're really good hot dogs, like beef and garlic. And one of the things that I like to put on them is the sauerkraut. And, uh, you know, even as a kid, I never really liked sauerkraut. I'm like, oh, it smells stink. Why am I going to like this? But I guess as you grow up, you know, your taste change. But now I really enjoy sauerkraut to the point where I can just eat it without a hot dog. So it, it's mm-hmm. great. <laughs> um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is that I, I mentioned having Hannah Crum on, and we talked about kombucha. And I guess that when you – kombucha seems to be all the rage, and most people know about kombucha and know that it's fermented. But why don't you think that fermented vegetables kind of get the publicity that the sexier counterparts uh, uh, get? Um, you know, that's a great question. But what – I mean, I think with kombucha, I think that um, part of the reason it's so popular is it's a – really easy way we you know we like carbonated beverages we like soda pop and so it's a Mm -hmm. really easy switch over for folks to go from you know the really unhealthy soda pop to you know these just fabulous fun flavors of um, kombucha and I think like you said as a kid people don't like sauerkraut when they think of fermented vegetables they don't think of that fresh raw stuff that you're talking about or that I'm talking about, they think of Mm -hmm. all the really soury kind of limp stuff that, you know, they might have gotten on a hot dog in in their grade school cafeteria. And so (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. that that getting past that is is part of it. But I do know that, um, like I said, you know, at market and everything, once people taste it, um, often they're hooked. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because I, uh, like I said, I like sauerkraut. But even though as a kid I was that weird kid, I would always suck on lemons. I remember eating carrots with vinegar. I always liked sour things, but I don't know why I didn't like sauerkraut. Maybe because the way that it looked, or maybe because my mom liked it, or something. And as a kid, when you have grownups <laughs> that like something, you tend to not like it. He's like, oh, grownups like that. I'm a kid. I can't like that. So it was just weird that. I didn't discover sauerkraut and really liking sauerkraut until almost two years ago. 
Um, one of the things that kind of puts people off when it comes to fermented vegetables is the smell. And you mentioned that uh, in the beginning, that you discovered this around Christmas and your kids were saying, wow, mom, this stuff doesn't smell too good. Is that smell part of what makes fermentation so so good for us? <laughs> you know, I think in a roundabout way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'll do is I'll just back up and, and um, tell you what's, what's going on, you know, when you have your vegetable. And it, it doesn't matter what vegetable. I mean, we're talking about sauerkraut here. But, uh-huh. um, you know, you can ferment any vegetable. You can eat fermented vegetable three meals a day and never have sauerkraut but be getting all those benefits and um so what happens is you've got your vegetable and it's fully loaded with all the bacteria you need to get this process going um it's an ancient uh, process for preservation um and we're using it now more for flavor um, because we realize as a culture that this has been a flavor that you know, we've had our our bodies have evolved with the flavor and the probiotics, and and it's really coming back. But so what happens is you've got your vegetable. You know, you either chop it up to create a brine, or you um, pour a brine over it, like in the case of a of a dill pickle. You're mm-hmm. pouring salt water over it, and in, with this briny, salty environment. Um, you're creating sort of the perfect environment for the good bacteria to get started, the lactobacillus. And when the lactobacillus gets going in in that environment, what it's doing is it's eating the sugars, the carbs. It's basically pre-digesting for you. Um, Mm. And in doing so, what's going on is it's creating CO2, it's creating gas as it's digesting these um, carbs for you. and, and it's off-gassing, just like if that was happening in your stomach <laughs> mm-hmm. and you would mm-hmm. have to release the gas. You know, it, it is part of that process. So, um, But the cool thing is when, you know, some folks that can't eat some of these vegetables, like um, onions maybe really upset their stomachs when they're, you know, in their raw form, or cabbage, you know, a lot of folks can't eat raw cabbage or unfermented cooked cabbage, but... They can eat sauerkraut because the bacteria has gone to work. It's pre-digested the things that we can't digest anyway and made that food more bioavailable for us. Mm-hmm. And what you just described was uh, the lacto-fermentation process of going, of going through that. Yeah, the very kind of quick method <laughs> or the quick description. Yeah. And we can go yeah. deeper we'll, into that if you like. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get into a little bit more of that. You mentioned a brine, and uh, when I think about brine, uh, it brings me back to turkey because on Thanksgiving I'm the one that usually cooks the turkey, and you have to kind of put it in a brine if you want it to be, you know, tender and juicy and all that. But what is the brine actually made of? Is it, you mentioned just salt? Is it just salt water that the brine is made of when you're actually doing? I guess we'll use sauerkraut because that seems like the more the more simple thing to make. But um, is that brine just made up of salt water? Um, well, the cool thing is when you're doing sauerkraut, what you're doing is you're actually making the brine out of the salt and the water from the vegetable itself. You're not actually okay. adding any new water. You you get that salt in there. 
and since those cabbage pieces are shredded, you have you've broken up that cell structure, and then you get the salt in there, and it starts, um, you know, pulling out the the juices, and so the brine is actually cabbage water and <laughs> salt, mm-hmm. and that's it. And then of course, you know, that's for plain sauerkraut. Now, if you want to like your turkey brine, you know, you add probably peppercorns and you know some herbs and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Again, with sauerkraut, you can do that same thing. You can really play with flavor and, and make some incredible flavors by adding other vegetables or, you know, herbs and spices or or hot peppers, whatever you're feeling. Oh, okay. You can actually add that to the, the brine itself for, like, if you were doing the sauerkraut, you can add spices Absolutely. as well? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, like one of our, our one of our really popular ferments, um, we we it's in our book. We call it the Gateway Kraut um, because folks that thought they didn't like sauerkraut um, really loved this kraut, and it was really simple. But it's um, the, just the cabbage and some fresh garlic and some dill, dill weed, you know, the dried dill and some lemon juice, and so you can you know really play with that flavor. Um, real traditional sauerkrauts are made with caraway seeds. Okay. Speaking of the salt and uh, the flavor, um, what type of salt do you recommend? And with the flavor, does the uh, – and you're speaking to a bit of a weirdo because I mentioned that I used to suck lemons as a kid <laughs> and also <laughs> um, eat carrots with vinegar on them. I just love them. I don't know why. But um, for those people out there who – might be a little bit skeptical. Does um, fermenting actually improve the taste of the vegetables? Give it uh, like a, a better taste. But I guess the first question is the salt. Just with you know what kind of salt to use, and then you can answer if you know it actually improves the taste of the vegetables. Okay. So what kind of salt to use? We like to use, um, or I recommend folks use unrefined salts, and that can be whatever unrefined salt um, that you like. We personally use um, Redmond Real Salt. It's a rock salt out of Utah, and mm-hmm. I'm not paid to, <laughs> to, to say this, but the reason I like it is, and, it, and this goes for the Himalayan pink, this goes for, um, you know, a good Celtic pipe or another sea salt where you've got those trace minerals in there. And two things happen by using these unrefined salts that are higher in trace minerals. One is, of course, you're getting your trace minerals now in your food as part of the health aspect. Um, the other thing is um, these salts often have a much lower actual sodium chloride content, um, and so they actually have a bit of a sweeter flavor because those trace minerals are giving them a little bit of a, um, you know, a, a more mellow, briny flavor instead of that really, you know, mm-hmm. punch of salt that's kind of hard to take. Um, and and while we're talking about salt, you know, it's really good to understand, too, that these recipes um, are usually, like in my book, are about a 1.5% salt ratio to weight. Um, so it's not a lot of salt, um, and they don't taste salty, per se. Mm-hmm. Um, they they um, have that kind of salt flavor that you know that tastes good, but but it doesn't taste briny. If it does taste briny, you've probably got too much salt in your recipe. 
Um, and so the second part of your question, right, was flavor and does it make it taste better? <laughs> I think that's that's really individual. Some people do think it makes the vegetables taste better. It gives them almost that quality of, you know, you've made them into a salad because you've got you've got these uh, these fl- flavors layered on already. You've got you know the little bit of acidity. You've got a little bit of salt in there if you've put some herbs in there. So, in a way. Yeah, they do, and, and it gives you that instant instant flavor right away. You don't have right. to prep it, you know, just straight out of the jar. <laughs> mm-hmm. You mentioned the, the ratio of the salt, and uh, I used to be really salt-phobic, and I, I really uh, realized over the years how important salt is and how I was kind of not doing justice to my body by intaking enough salt. And I use Redmond's, by the way, myself, but... What would you say to someone who's really salt phobic because you have those types of people? It's like, oh, my God, I can't use salt in this because the doctor told me not to use salt because of high blood pressure or something of that nature. Yeah, you know, that is, that's, a, that's a thing that I, I encounter a lot. Um, and I feel like that's, that's sort of like, you know, the fat and butter phobia that folks have because we've been told by, you know, industry and and the medical world to stay away from salt and stay away from fats. And um, I, I just encourage people to, to do some research. And, you know, of course they know more about what their salt intake is, but um, I try to remind people that, you know, that the processed food has way more salt than this is ever going to have. And so, you know, eating these kind of foods are, are just leaps and bounds more nutritious um, and you're going to get so much more out of it. And um, also that that it, it really isn't that high of a content, even though it sounds like a high content. Um, you know, the, the older recipes say packed in salt and that's how pickles and sauerkraut was made. Recipes really aren't like that. So... Yeah. Um, I was going to say something else, but it slipped. <laughs> That's okay. It happens to me all the time. It'll come back. <laughs> but um, my next question for you is, um, is fermenting better than, than freezing? Does it actually boost the nutrient content? Because I know a lot of what's been going on lately with nutrition is that we're kind of losing our nutrient co- content in our foods and one of the things that people do to preserve nutrient content in food is obviously is freeze it. But I'm wondering if ferment, fermenting and using fermented vegetables kind of maybe might either save the nutrient content of the vegetable. Um, yeah, it's actually pretty fantastic what happens. Um, so as the bacteria are doing their little thing, you know, consuming the, the sugars and pre-digesting and, and all of that. They're also actually adding nutrient content to the food. The vitamin C of, say, we're going to use cabbage again, but say that sauerkraut versus that fresh cabbage, even if it's just off the field, is so much higher in the sauerkraut. Um, So when you ferment a vegetable, vitamin C goes up. You now get K2 on board, which is um, a vitamin we use for vitamin D production um, or uh, absorption, sorry. And then um, 
you get B12, you know, trace amounts of B12 that usually you can only get from animal products. So you're getting um, this increased nutrient. You're, you're saving or preserving or however you want to put it, the nutrients that are already part of that vegetable. And um, the whole thing is then enhanced one, one time further because it's more bioavailable to your body. So you can uptake these vitamins way better than you can if they're not fermented. Yeah. I guess we should kind of hit on what the benefits of fermentation are. You kind of mentioned a little bit throughout the interview about, you know, having probiotics, but what are some of the other benefits of just fermenting foods or fermenting vegetables um, per se? Yeah. So, well, the one that the one is what we just talked about is, is of course that, that suddenly your vegetables are so much more nutrient dense Um and because it's an ancient preservation technique, you know, if you're a gardener or, um, you know, love to shop at the farmer's market or you love to eat local or any of these kind of things, it's a, re- it's a way to preserve that vegetable in um, when it's at its peak, peak flavor, peak um, nutrition and all of that. You know, you take those seasonal vegetables and then you ferment them and they're good in your refrigerator for a year because what's happening is as those probiotics work I mean as they do their work the lactobacillus does its work and and acidifies it it's actually not the salt and I'm going a little aside here but (laughs) it's not actually Mm -hmm. the salt that does the preservation it's that acidification that comes from the process so the salt creates that great environment, and then the lactobacillus do their work, they acidify it, and then that's what makes it stable for so long. And so that's another benefit is you're, you can capture that flavor um, and the health benefits and eat off of that, you know, throughout the lean months when those vegetables aren't as fresh. Um, and then you've got, you know, that, that benefits both the health of your body, but also, you know, the health of your local community and that, you know, you're, you're using those local, those local vegetables. Um, yeah. And then of course there's the probiotics, which, um, they get all the, <laughs> they get all the real attention around the, <laughs> around fermentation is that mm-hmm. you're you know, constantly helping your gut keep a really good supply of, of, you know, good bacteria to help you. Yeah. And you they also have the enzymes. Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, no, no problem. I interrupted you there. Um, I came into contact with fermentation through sauerkraut, and then another way uh, was through uh, fermented grape juice, which was probably the best juice that I've ever tasted. I used to have a store near here, me here in Fort Lauderdale, that sold it, and um, I wasn't really familiar with the fermentation process. But I remember the gentleman mentioning me that they made it with whey. And in your book, you talk more about salt. Is uh, What's the, I guess, the benefit of using whey? Or, or do you even have to use whey when you're fermenting vegetables? Um, yeah, you don't even have to use whey. Uh, the nice thing about, there's a couple of reasons not to, to use anything. Um, one is that the vegetables, like I mentioned earlier, are fully loaded with everything they need. Um, and so 
it makes it simpler. You don't have to go out and find a good quality way. You can just, you know, ferment your vegetables this evening if you wanted to. Um, and also I found, like I said, we'd, we'd done a lot of home dairying, so I had a lot of way around good quality way. Um, but I found that um, in the case of the vegetables, I just, I preferred, you know, that clean, pure flavor of, of vegetables um, doing their own thing. And every once in a while I'd get a batch where I could kind of sense that cheesiness of the way. And, I mean, mm-hmm. I love cheese, but not so much in my vegetables. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as far as adding cultures, whether it's whey or it's a purchased um, culture, it's it's just not necessary. Um, and there's there's been some studies coming out. Um, Korea, because of their, their kimchi tradition, has a lot of uh, interesting studies about, you know, fermented vegetables. And one that's that I've read in the last year or so is that sometimes you can actually interrupt the population that you have by adding another culture, whether it's whey or a powdered culture, um, because you've already got this population. I mean, we can't see them, but they're already there, and they're already on the vegetable doing their thing. And sometimes if you add another culture, it can actually kind of interrupt the process and not necessarily help it. And, um, mm. yeah, the, there's there's just no need. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I know when I, um, about the juice, I was like, someone, they told me that you needed whey, and I was like, what do you need, you know, whey for? But, I, again, I wasn't familiar with the fermentation process, and I guess for grape juice that might work, but for anything else you probably may not want to use the uh, the whey What's well, yeah, and the grape juice is going to be so much different than the vegetables because you've got yeah. all the sugars, and they're going to just process differently. Okay, for someone like me who has never fermented a vegetable in his life, <laughs> what is <laughs> a, a great start of vegetable? Easiest vegetable you can do. <laughs> well, you know, there's a reason sauerkraut's everywhere. Um, cabbage <laughs> definitely is unfor. I mean, it's very forgiving it's very easy it lets up a lot of lets out a lot of juice on water so um that said if um if just not a, i mean i know you are you like you said you like sauerkraut if you're not a cabbage fan carrots um just uh grated carrots also ferment super easy and so if you if you really don't want to start with cabbage then then that's the one i'd recommend Great. Yeah, I, I had a from the book, I was like, cabbage is probably the easiest one. Um, lacto-fermentation and lacto, lactose intolerance kind of sound a little bit like, somewhat similar. But um, from the book, I gathered that if you are lactose intolerant, you don't have any issues with fermentation and the lacto-fermentation process. Yeah, it's just semantic confusion (laughs) (laughs) because lactic acid sounds like lactose, and we call it lacto-fermentation and (laughs) lacto-intolerance. So, yeah, it's it's, exactly you're right. There's no no correlation, Um, and if you're lactose intolerant, then um, fermentation is just fine for you, especially if you're not using whey. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, I have so many experience because when going through your book and getting prepared for the interview, uh, I kept recalling conversations that I've had over the years with many different people. And one of the, the things that I came across with kimchi was uh, a friend of mine told me about this years and years ago. I'm like, well, what is this stuff? And he's like, oh, it's some kind of Korean thing that they do. And he didn't explain to me what fermentation or anything. He was just like, well, it's some kind of vegetable and it smells stink. That's all he said. And, and he's like, well, <laughs> the the way that you make it is you put this in a pot. And he said that the woman went outside and buried it in the ground. I don't know how, uh, how uh, correct he was with this, but it scared me. Because I'm like, why is somebody going in the back burying something in a pot in the ground? And like I said, I don't know how correct that is. But I guess we should talk a little bit about the equipment and, and things that are needed uh, when you start the, the fermentation process. Yeah. So um, as far as burying in the ground, I believe that was done in more the northern parts, and it was to mm-hmm. keep it cold. So it was like using the ground like we do um, root cellars, you know, just kind of capturing that steady temperature of the ground Um, so the food never comes in contact with the ground but the pot's down underneath there Um, and they use a clay pot um, called an ongi pot in Korea and the counterpart here of course is a ceramic crock Um, and there are lots of crocks there's the real ones that most people have seen the the sort of straight-sided crocks Um, now there's also a lot of crocks available everywhere um, from Europe. There's a German type or a Polish type, and they have what they call a um, a water a water seal. And what that means is there's, a, there's kind of this moat at the top of the crock, and you put water in it, and then the lid kind of nests into that little moat of water. And what that does is it allows that CO2 to escape the crock, but not mm-hmm. to let you know, new oxygen in, because this process is an anaerobic process. So what you need to get started is you just need to understand a few things, and you need a jar, and it, the simplest of all is probably um, a jar and a plastic, you know, Ziploc bag, and you can get started. Um, because really what you're doing is you are needing... However it works for you, whether it's a fancy crock, whether it's a jar with an airlock lid on it, which, you know, does that same thing, um, you just you need to keep the oxygen out but let the CO2 out. And so, like, the simple, the simple way to just see if you even want to ever do this again before you spend a bunch of money on equipment is to take a jar and, you know, prepare your vegetables. Um, let's say you're doing a little bit of sauerkraut, so you're going to chop it um, in shreds and mix in some salt. So for like a three-pound cabbage, that would be about a tablespoon of salt, and that will probably give you about two two quart jars worth of sauerkraut. And you're going to fill that jar, and you're going to press it in there until you see that brine come up. Um, And you're going to fill that jar with... um, the cabbage and, and you know, the liquid that's coming from it to about, I'd say about, about the shoulder, maybe three-quarters of the way up, maybe a little bit higher than that. And then you're going to take a bag 
and open it up in the jar and sort of press the bottom down on the bag and down onto the sauerkraut that's in there or the cabbage. It's not quite sauerkraut yet. And then you're going to pour some water in that bag. And what that does is it's really cool. You end up with um, this nice weight over the top of your ferment. So you're keeping that weight in there um, to allow that carbon dioxide to to get out. Because what happens is that carbon dioxide from the bacteria consuming the um, sugars really starts bubbling. It, It starts, you know kind of moving the cabbage around so that weight helps Um, and then with the bag it's kind of cool it's kind of a hack to that airlock system because the bag sort of fits around the water fills in the spaces and the wrinkles allow the co2 to escape but don't really give a place for new air to get down in there so that's probably the easiest but what you want is you want to create that anaerobic environment and then you want to watch it and keep it all under the brine so we have a little saying um, about, you know. Uh, the brine? Yeah, the brine. <laughs> like yeah, I remember I remember seeing it. Uh, yeah, sink and brine conquers evil every time was what it originally was, and then I think in the book it became something else. <laughs> but it basically yeah, I remember the idea it. is you got to keep it all under the brine and just watch for that. And there's – when I wrote the book, um, there was – not a lot of equipment, you know, the few airlock lids and the and and there were crocs which have been around for centuries and 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 you know little weights or you can use plates as weights or all different things. But now if you go on the internet, um it's become so popular. There's there's so many choices, yeah. but that's why I suggest just start with a jar and a bag and just see if you like the process. <laughs> Yeah, it, with the uh, the Crocs is the um, I guess glass you mentioned just as a simple thing is glass best because I know in the book you mentioned that certain things can contaminate the process and I think you mentioned like cast iron aluminum things of that nature but talk a little bit about that and what might be the best thing when you're working with these with these Crocs. Um, yeah, I like glass because especially when you're teaching yourself how to do this. You can really see what's going on. You know, you can see if your brine has sort of been pushed out by the CO2. You know, you'll see the little air pockets between your vegetables, and you'll see your brine all on top, and you'll know, okay, if I press that down, it'll get back down into my ferment where it's supposed to be. Um, Yeah, you don't want to use, for weights or for any part of the process, you don't want to use reactive metals. Now, surgical-grade stainless steel, you know, works just fine if if you know that you've got really good quality stainless steel. Um, But mostly you're going to want to use the ceramic crock, um, a newer one. The older ones might have lead-based glazes, so you don't want to really get into that. But glass or ceramic um, works really nicely. Some people like to ferment in big five-gallon buckets and... um, you know, plastic, people aren't totally sure about it one way or the other. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that it, it is a big vessel if you're fermenting a lot, and it, it's certainly lighter weight and cheaper than, than a huge crock. So. Yeah. Uh, how long does it have to 
let's say I'm making some sauerkraut, how long does it actually have to sit in that jar before I know it's done? Um, you know, this is the trickiest part. When you bake some cookies, I can tell you, you know, 15 minutes at 350 degrees or whatever. Um, and fermentation is a little bit trickier because you've got um, different elements working. So this time of year in the summertime, um, when your house is, you know, pretty warm, it's going to go a lot faster. So that quart, that quart of, of sauerkraut, you know, it will be... It'll start fermenting, you know, the first night or two, and it might be ready in a warm house anywhere around five to seven days, um, and then, and then it then it starts depending on what you like because ready means that the acidity level has dropped um, below four point six, and I know that sounds like oh no, how do you tell what's four point six pH? Um, it's you don't need you don't need anything special. You'll you'll know it'll smell pickly. It'll look um, like a different color. It'll um, it, so the the cabbage instead of being bright green, it'll start looking almost translucent and cooked, um, mm-hmm. and it'll have that yellow yellow quality to it. And, and like I said, you'll smell it pickly, and and that means it's ready. Now the bacteria will still keep going, so you can let that go for a week or two more, um, the smaller ones really go much faster than like a huge giant crock. If we're talking a huge giant crock, it'll it'll be longer. But most people do these small ones, and and they're ready, you know, pretty quickly. Um, and so why would you let it go longer? Um, some people like it more sour, and so the, mm-hmm. the longer it ferments, the more sour it will get. If you are just learning to like fermented vegetables, I suggest eating it early, you know, when it's still not as ripe because then you're going to get used to that sour flavor, but it's not going to be as strong. Um, and then if it's cold and it's wintertime, those ferments are going to are going to go a little slower because um, the bacteria just aren't going to be working as quickly. So you mentioned summertime, and I, I remember in the book that there's an ideal temperature that you want to keep the vegetables at? What's that ideal range that you, you want to kind of fall between? So for me, the the ideal flavor range is somewhere between about 65 and 70, but the actual fermentation temperature range is much bigger. Um, under 55 degrees and your ferments are going to, or your little bacteria are going to be, sluggish um, and it, it may not ferment properly so you don't want it to be too cool um, and then over 75 it starts getting um, everything starts fermenting a little faster than you you want so the ideal range is somewhere between 55 and 75 now that's not to say that over 75 like I said it's summertime um, is a huge problem. It just means it's going to go a lot faster. It's going to get acidic a lot faster, and you're going to have to really watch it. Um, if it was too hot, you know, that 90, 90 range or whatever, for too long of a time, they might not be able to get going quite as well. Yeah, I, well. I live in Florida, so I'm like, okay, how? <laughs> if I wanted <laughs> to do this, 
how am I going to accomplish that? Because it is super hot here right now. But um, I'm wondering, how do you accomplish that ideal temperature? Do you just like put it in a basement or how's that, how's that done? Yeah, find those cool spots in your house. You know, I used to live in Tucson, Arizona, and it it was very hot in the summer, but we had tile floors. And so keeping it, you know, on an out-of-the-way corner on the tile floor would be a way to, you know, capture that coolness in the tile floor that would radiate up through that jar. Um, You can take and sort of make a cooler a cooler space, like, you know, on the hottest part of the day, put your ferment in the cooler with an ice pack just to, you know, kind of regulate it a little bit and keep it cooler. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, just kind of play with play with that. Where we live, it gets really hot in the summer, but, excuse me, in the daytime, but the um, evenings are cool, so it all levels out and works out fine. Yeah. Because <laughs> they get cooled yeah, off at night. <laughs> yeah, you're in Oregon. I'm actually in South Florida. I'm like... Yeah, like you've 10, got a whole different weather going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I um, and I, I have to ask you this because as preparing for the interview and going through the book and, and doing everything that I do to get my questions prepared, I think this is the only time I've come upon anything where they say mold is good. Talk about mold, and you said that. <laughs> even having a little bit of mold on the top of what you're fermenting is actually a good thing, not too much or a different color, but talk a little bit about mold and why it's a good thing. Well, it's not actually a good thing, but it's just not a bad thing. Okay. <laughs> so mold, mold happens. Um, like I said, it's, it's an anaerobic process. So um, what you're after is the ferment that has never seen the oxygen. Sometimes the top will get a little mold on it because the oxygen um, feeds the mold, but so so the thing with mold is, um, you know, especially on those big crocks or you know a ferment that's sitting for a longer time, you're gonna eat, it's very possible to get some mold. And the and the cool thing is, you just um, as long as everything has been under the brine, um, you can skim off the top to that point where mm-hmm. you're back in that brine level where everything's you know in the brine. Um, if, if the mold is throughout or the mold, um, is, there's gotten oxygen throughout or the mold's, you know, down in it, then, then maybe you can't save it. But if it's just on top or just floating on the brine, yeah, you just scoop that off and, um, you're in good shape. Okay. So audience out there know that you can scoop if it's not all in everything but um right and the cool thing we did put in the book is because you know like i said when we wrote this there wasn't a lot out there even you know even on the internet now you can search and you can find so much but one thing we did put in the back of the book and i don't know if you saw this but is we put a scum gallery because when we wrote the book at the time all the recipes would say skim the scum and it was like you know what is scum so we've got we've got the uh the the pictures of all the yucky things you can encounter in the back and kind of explain what they are and and how to deal with them yeah yeah i'm familiar with the scum from uh kombucha there were two questions i really wanted to ask you because i really was kind of um, very intrigued by them and um because i know that throughout the book and looking at the pictures 
I saw that you were using vegetables with what we would call gotrogenic vegetables, things like um, cauliflower and other types of vegetables, which are often not recommended, especially for people who have thyroid issues. You know, you kind of want to stay away from those vegetables. But you had a solution to this in in the book. Talk a little bit about the solution if you are going to, you know, ferment goitrogenic vegetables. Yeah, unfortunately, um, the fermentation process does a lot of transformations, but that's not one of them. <laughs> the the yeah. goitrogenic vegetables stay that way. <laughs> um, I did a lot of research hoping that <laughs> maybe that changed, but... So what I came up with is there's a list in the book um, and of the vegetables that that aren't. Um, so many of the ones that ferment well are in that cabbage family. Um, however, there's a recipe in the book for a escarole kimchi um, that's fantastic, uh, and it it's got the the same feeling as if you're using a Napa cabbage, um, but it's it's escarole, which is um, not in that family, and it's in the chicory family. So you're you're able to still get the benefit of the fermentation, and you'll get the flavor of of some of these veg- or you know some of these condiments that are so popular without having to worry about that. So there's yeah. there's definitely a few recipes for for folks that really do need to stay away from those veggies. Yeah, and also I think you you might have mentioned uh, maybe adding seaweed to it to be able to, I guess, mm-hmm. counteract the the. Exactly. Principle. Yes. Okay. Thanks for reminding okay. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know when you write a book because I know when I interview people, it's like you write these books and then it's like, oh my god, you know, because <laughs> I know how it is when you you know you have a book and it's like you can't remember everything. Um, another thing, and this came to me, um, this came to me about two weeks ago. Someone just reached out to me, you know, over the uh, internet and asked me about, um, oxalic, oxalic acid. And, Uh um, and I wanted to ask that question just because someone asked me about that. And, uh, what does the fermentation process do to, to vegetables or fruits that contain oxalates? Um, you know, that's a that's an interesting one. It took me a long a long time to sort of tease that one apart because it's such a um there's so much information out there that's that's contradictory <laughs> to each other and and um yeah, so it um it also does not ferment away. It uh it's it's in there. Um, hmm, trying to think what else I remember about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't have. You know, it's not coming to me really quickly. What what else I said about it in the book? Do you do you remember? <laughs> I do know well, that I, I think... did a bunch of research around it. Yeah, I don't um I think I remember actually you saying that it did in the fermentation process that it, it did kind of break up the uh, oxalic acid. So that's what I oh, remember yep, from the I book. Oh, I did. I just I just grabbed the book. It does break <laughs> it up. There you yeah. go. 
Um, yeah, you know, it's uh, like I said, I went back and forth. This, that was one of the things I, it's funny that I didn't even remember it correctly, and it was because I, I had to research it um, so much to really um, figure it out, and finally I did find find some scientific papers that <laughs> that yeah. does ferment out because a lot of a lot of websites will tell you it does not. Yeah. Well, um that's all the questions that I had. The book is a really good book. I really enjoyed it, um especially with the the different recipes and it kind of made me want to start fermenting. So <laughs> I think I'm going to try my my hand at this because um one of the things that uh I'm going to be focusing on for the next couple of months here is my digestion. I've been having some not really crazy digestive issues, but I want to kind of improve my digestion. And I know that this is one of the things I want to add into my diet to kind of help with uh, some digestive issues that I've been having. So, I mean, your book and, and really looking at it's like, okay, I can do this. I can do this myself. So it'll be a nice fun. You you got this. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like this will be a nice fun project for me to kind of do, you know, on a weekend day when I when I'm in the mood to do it, when I'm inspired to do it. So I'm going to get in the kitchen and uh, and really I'll probably start out with sauerkraut first, just because just the easiest thing. But again, the book was really good. I enjoyed the the pictures are like top rank. I've never seen any pictures that have been as good as the pictures that are in the book. So really enjoyed it, Kirsten. And um, your book is available on Amazon, I, I would assume. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. And all the other book all, outlets. All your that favorite bookstores. <laughs> yeah, and all your favorite bookstores. And your site, if I recall correctly, is ferment.works. So if you want to learn more, yeah, if you want to learn more about Kirsten and her fermenting, Go to ferment.works, and I have it on the site. So if you're um, looking at the show notes, you'll be able to pick it up from there. And, Kristen, thank you for being on. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you, Darren. It was nice to meet you and talk to you. All right, thank you. Have a great night. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Well, fermented vegetables, again, is something that – you could probably buy from the store, but a lot of the stuff, if you want to save money, you can do it on your own, and it doesn't take that much time. And if you're willing to invest in a research, and uh, you can do it yourself, and you save yourself a lot, a lot of money. I know sometimes it's convenient to go out and buy things, but sometimes it's even more convenient and even more cost-saving if you can do these things yourself and you find you're making a lot more for yourself and you can save this. I think she said it's up to a year. So again, really good show, fermented vegetables. And I believe we'll be off for the week. Like I said before, um, there was some scheduling. I didn't really get into the scheduling. I had a funeral a couple of weeks ago and it kind of pushed me back on scheduling so that we have some points where I didn't schedule anybody. But I believe the last show for August will be with uh, Carol Truman, and I think that's uh, the 24th or 28th. I'm not really sure, but we'll be discussing a book called Feelings Buried Alive Never Die, and it's probably more on the consciousness of, you know, understanding your feelings and how our feelings create emotions and how our emotions actually end up creating our illness. So 
looking forward to diving into her book and learning a lot more about this because this is something I really believe in. But again, hope you enjoyed tonight's show. I will see you in a week. Same fat time, same fat channel. One love. Thank you for listening. Good night.